are self-absorbed, the world revolves around me, culture would say, Tom Brady has achieved it. He is successful, he's got wealth, he's got fame, he's there. But Tom Brady says, there's got to be something more than this. Is it possible that there is a better way? Is it possible that living a self-absorbed life doesn't deliver what our culture promises? We've been exploring that for the last several weeks, and we've been exploring the idea that God really wants us to live a successful, extraordinary life in the midst of this very self-absorbed world. And we've been looking in Romans chapter 12, a book in the Bible, where we've been finding some wisdom about how to, how to live a successful life in the midst of a very self-absorbed world. And we've discovered there that God says he wants to transform our lives. Or what's the other word for transform? Renovate. Yeah, God wants to transform or renovate our lives, doesn't he? In fact, he wants to turn them into something that is spectacular. And often that's what happens as a result of renovation. The results are spectacular. I brought along some before and after pictures today, some renovation and other kinds of before and afters. Uh, First is this house. This was kind of a New England cottage-style house before. Look what they turned it into. Yeah, spectacular, isn't it? Or or look at this one. It's a little hard to see from your seats probably, but on the left-hand side is before the transformation of Photoshop, and on the right-hand side is after Photoshop. And I don't know if you can see the differences, but actually when they're up close, it's amazing what Photoshop can do. Wish they'd do that to me. Next one. A little uh, before and after. Before on the right, after on the, or before on the left, and after on the right. Way to go. Whoever that is, way to go. That's spectacular. And here's another one. Here's the before shot of a kitchen that is about to be renovated. And here's the after shot. Yeah, it's kind of spectacular, isn't it? The transformation that takes place. I brought along one more uh, before and after. Before on the left, after on the right. Yeah, that's transformation in reverse right there. Yeah, just ignore that one, okay? That's not what we're going for at all. You know what? God wants to do something spectacular in our lives. And as we've been discovering, the way that he does that is by changing our thinking, by changing our mindset, by changing our core beliefs. In fact, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, the pattern of a self-absorbed world, but be transformed or renovated. How? By the renewing of your mind. And we've pointed out three core beliefs that I think God wants to change in us if there's going to be this spectacular renovation. The first, we've said, is that God knows better than I do. And we ask, what would happen if we would dare to live like we really believed God knows better than I do? The second core belief that we talked about is that God is up to something in the world and I've been invited to play a part. And what would happen in our lives if I accepted His invitation to join Him in what he's doing and found my place to serve today there is a third core value that is part of this transformation and that third core value is that god loves people i should too god loves people i should too now the book of romans that paul wrote paul an early church leader wrote 
the first 11 chapters talk about God's love for us. In fact, Paul goes into great detail about the depth of God's love for people. And I think Paul's words are summed up in this verse, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He kind of summarizes everything by saying this, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While our lives were still messed up because of our bad choices, because of our sin, God loved us enough to send his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the wrong that we have done. That's the way that God loves people. And Paul says, if there's going to be a real transformation, one of the marks will be is that we will grow in our ability to also love people. Paul begins talking about this love in verse 9. And he says this. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now, how would you define sincere love? If I told you this morning that I love you, but I never did anything to demonstrate that love, I never did anything to back up my words, would you really believe me? I doubt it. I doubt that you would take that as sincere love. Sincere love is backed up by actions, isn't it? I read an interesting survey this week about 18 to 28-year-old young adults. In a lot of churches across America, 18 to 20-year-olds have vanished. They're not there anymore. They've left the church. Now, I'm pretty excited around here at Crosspoint. We have a significant number of people who fall in that age category, and it's pretty exciting to see them connecting with church. But they did a survey, a lot of these 18 to 20-year-olds who no longer go to church, and they asked them their opinion about the church. And you know what? Three things they said most predominantly about the church, about Christians, people who call themselves Christians. They said they're homophobic, they're irrelevant, and they're judgmental. But they also went on to say in the same survey, same respondents said, they believe in a God. They believe in the God of the universe. They're attracted to God and what He's doing. They also said in the survey, they're very fond of Jesus Christ. Now you know what that says to me? There is a disconnect there. And when I read between the lines, part of what they're saying is, they don't think the church or people who call themselves Christians are sincere. Now they called us judgmental and irrelevant. My understanding, they're saying we're not sincere. And when we tell them we care about it, they don't buy it. Because evidently our words and our actions haven't backed up what we say. Paul says our love needs to be sincere. And then he begins in chapter 12, the remaining parts of it, to give us some signs or indicators of what sincere love really looks like. And if you'll allow me today, I'm going to take what he said there and summarize it into four signs of love. Four signs of sincere love. First, if love is going to be sincere in our life, we will have a clear vision of self. A clear vision of self. Listen to what Paul says in verse 10, Romans 12. He says, honor one another above yourselves. Verse 16. Do not be proud but be a willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Sincere love begins with a vision of myself that realizes I am not more important than other people. Dan Mazur woke on a beautiful May morning and he thought this would be the day that he would accomplish his goal of climbing to the top of Mount Everest. 
They were above 26,000 feet. He had trained for months, for six weeks they had been climbing, and now they just had 1,000 feet to go. It is dangerous territory up there, though. Many people have lost their lives above 26,000 feet. The oxygen level is very low. You have to wear an oxygen tank. Blizzards creep in at any time. It is ferociously cold. But on this morning, he thought, we're going to the top. They began to make their final journey up that mountain when they saw something yellow in the distance. And at first, they thought it was just a tent of some kind. But as they drew closer, they could tell it was a man. They were amazed that someone was up there. Now, at that level, oxygen level is low, and so you can easily hallucinate. And this man was sitting on the edge of a rock in a dangerous position, his coat unzipped, gloves off, oxygen mask off, and they approached him and said, do you know your name? He said, my name is Lincoln Hall. They were amazed. Because just the day before, they had received a report over the radio saying that Lincoln Hall had died during his journey to the summit of the mountain and that his team was leaving him behind and coming back down the mountain. They couldn't believe it. They were standing face to face with a miracle. And they were also standing face to face with a very difficult decision. Do we leave him here to die and reach our goal of making it to the top of the mountain? Or do we abandon our dream? Do we leave behind our goal? And do we help this guy get back down the mountain? Now they knew getting back down the mountain, even by yourself, can be extremely treacherous, but helping to carry the dead weight of someone who was near death could be extremely dangerous. And besides that, what was to guarantee he'd even live long enough to get back to the bottom of the mountain? But they decided they would abandon their dream and they would help him down the mountain. And today, Lincoln Hall is alive because they were willing to put him before themselves. Their decision leaves us with an important question to ask. What would you do? Yeah, if you were in their shoes, how would you respond? Would you abandon your dreams to help someone else? Would you set aside your goals for the life of another? You know what? We come to those kind of fork-in-the-road decisions every day of our lives, not in regard to adventurers on Mount Everest, but when it comes to people in our home, our children, our spouse, people at work, our colleagues, at school, our friends. And every day we are faced with a subtle yet significant decision And it all comes under the category of who's most important, me or other people. And we are forced to decide. Paul says, don't be proud. Don't be conceited. Get over yourself. Jesus said it this way, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross or reprioritize your life and follow me later in the bible we read this in philippians it says don't push your way to the front (laughs) don't sweet talk your way to the top put yourself aside and help others get ahead sincere love begins with having a clear view of myself that i am not more important than other people The second sign of sincere love is that we need to value community. We need to value community. 
Robert Roberts writes of a fourth grade class who played the game Balloon Stomp. Ever seen this done? They brought all the children into a large room and they tied balloons to everyone's ankle with a string. The goal of the game is to pop everyone else's balloon before yours gets popped and the last one whose balloon is not popped wins the game. So the instructions were given to the children, the whistle blew, and they set out like bandits to break other people's balloons and to protect their own. Now some kids didn't really enjoy the game and didn't want to get their balloon popped and so they tried to mix in with the crowd and be unnoticed, but it didn't work. Others were very shy and tried to stand along the sidelines, but it didn't matter. Eventually everyone's balloon was popped but one, and of course it was the one kid in the class that nobody really liked, but he was the winner. He had defeated everybody else. After that class left, another group of children were brought into the room and given the same instructions, but this time it was a group of developmentally challenged children. Some of the adults in the room feared that they didn't really understand the instructions that were given, but balloons were tied to their ankles, the instructions were given, and the whistle blew. And you know what? They didn't understand. They didn't understand that they were supposed to pop everyone else's balloon and protect their own. You know what they did? They just began popping balloons. It wasn't competition to them. It was all about, let's just pop the balloons. In fact, one little boy was having trouble popping the balloon attached to a little girl, and so she reached down and held the balloon for him so that he could pop it. And eventually, every balloon in the room was popped, and when the final balloon had been popped, they all erupted in applause and cheering because to them, that was the goal. And together as a community, they had accomplished it. Not as competitors out to win or advance themselves. They saw it as, let's do it together. And contrary to our culture, life is not one big competition. In fact, listen to what Paul says in verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Verse 13, he says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality verse 15 he says rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn live in harmony with one another you see the goal is not to pop their balloon before they pop yours paul says we're on the same team live as a community now i know our self-absorbed world says you pop everyone else's balloon before they pop yours because they believe the idea That if I'm going to be happy, I've got to get ahead of everybody else. That real joy is found in winning the competition and being ahead of everybody else. Paul says, that's not it at all. It's about community, not competition. Later in the Bible, we read this. All of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Maybe you have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. I think nearly everybody's heard that story. Even if church hasn't been much of your life, you have probably heard people in culture talk about the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story that Jesus tells in the Bible, and basically the story is there was a guy who walked along a road one day, and some thugs jumped out from behind a rock and beat him up, took his money, and left him to die. A religious type from the city nearby, happened to pass by and saw that he was injured, but went to the other side of the road and just kept walking. Another community leader type person came by and, again, just ignored the man who was hurt and kept walking. But then a man from Samaria came along, a man from a different country, saw this injured man, stopped, took care of his wounds, bandaged him up, 
transported him to a nearby inn, paid for, his, paid for him to stay there, and said, I'll be back to check on you in a couple of days. Now, when Jesus told this story, someone after his story said, who is my neighbor? And I think Jesus seems to imply from this story that our neighbor is anyone who has a need, whose need I can move to meet. But you know what? To be able to recognize the needs of people around us, you and I have to see life with compassion-colored glasses. Yeah, we've got to have a view of life that is full of compassion. And when we do, we will recognize that compassion happens in the moment. It happens in the moment when I see a need that I can help with, with the resources that I have at that time, whether it's money or time or talents or some kind of encouragement or simply a shoulder to cry on. Compassion moves me to help. You know what? It's time we let the balloon popping begin and start with ours. Why? Because God loves people and I should too. Here's the third sign of sincere love. It is to pursue good over evil. Look at verse 21. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know what? The world that we live in is full of evil. And I don't like a lot of things that happen in our culture. I don't like it that a man can walk into a daycare center, shoot a woman in front of innocent children. So should I protest, demand that guns not be so available, there be tighter security? I don't like it that some people choose to kill babies that are still living in the mother's womb. So should I stand on a street corner with a sign and protest abortion? I don't like the stories that I hear about the availability of drugs in our schools. So should I march on Tallahassee and demand tougher laws against drugs? Not that those things would be wrong. But remember what Paul says about defeating evil? He says, don't let evil defeat you, but defeat evil by how? Carrying signs and protesting? By shouting louder than the rest of our culture does? No, he says, you defeat evil by doing good. You know what? The good Samaritan didn't pursue some kind of political action to overcome the evil in his neighborhood. He didn't do something to get on the evening news so that he could make his neighbors aware that bad things were happening. He dealt with evil by doing good to one person at a time. The mother's name was Rojas, her last name. For some reason, back in 1891, she murdered both of her children. Then she slit her own throat to make it look like she had been attacked and falsely accused a farm worker down the road who police believed, they believed her story and they arrested him. But there was a detective who didn't buy her story. So he began to investigate. His name was Juan, and I honestly don't know how to pronounce that last name. Now remember, this was back in 1891, and fingerprints had never been used to prove a case. But he noticed a handprint on the wall that looked an awful lot like a female's, maybe Mrs. Rojas's. So he took some prints of her fingers and compared them to that handprint on the wall and realized they were one in the same. Mrs. Rojas was convicted of murder 
and it was the first time in the criminal system that fingerprints had ever been used to convict someone of a crime. Today we find that hard to imagine because the FBI has literally billions of fingerprints on file, and every single one of those is unique and special. God invites us to leave a spiritual fingerprint on people's lives. In fact, everywhere we go, we leave a spiritual fingerprint. And Paul would say, everywhere we go, the fingerprint we leave should be a fingerprint of good. And in the process of leaving our fingerprint of good on people's lives, we will begin to overcome the evil in the world around us. I like this old poem. It says, we are the only Bible a careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We are the Lord's last message given in deed and word. But then there, this last line is a bit ominous. It says, what if the type is crooked? What if the print is blurred? What if the spiritual fingerprint that we leave isn't good? Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples or that you are my followers. Why? If you love one another. God loves people. And I should too. Sign number four of sincere love is live a second mile life. Listen to what Paul says in verse 19. He says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and then don't miss this part. If your enemy, not your friend, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Or probably a little more clear, you will help them come to repentance. You will help them in the process to find, to see their wrong and begin to pursue God. We need to live a second mile life. In Jesus' time when he lived here on the earth, the Jewish people were under the rule of the Romans. And the rule of the Romans was kind of heavy-handed at times and difficult. It had been going on for many, many years, clear back to the Babylonian captivity. The Jewish people had learned to deal with it in different ways. Some of them had just kind of succumbed to the system and had learned how to live within the confines of being under Roman rule. Others had chosen to completely escape it by going and living other places. Others made the choice that they would bear the sword and fight for their independence. When Jesus came on the scene, he suggested there was another way to deal with this bondage. Jesus said, why don't you try serving the people around you? Now there was a tradition, a law at this time, that if a Roman soldier needed the help of a farmer in the field or a merchant in their shop, he could immediately demand their help, and they were required by law to carry his equipment one mile. And then he'd recruit, so to speak, someone else. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, the next time you're in your shop and a soldier shows up and pulls you outside, or the next time you're out on the field working and a soldier demands your help, you carry their stuff, and when you get to mile marker number one, you keep going. You go a second mile. 
And when they ask you why, you tell them it's because I choose to serve you. And see what difference that makes. You know what? A society of second-mile people still exists today. There are people today who have recognized that happiness is found in the extra effort. That the joy is found not in climbing Mount Everest yourself, but in helping other climbers get to the top. I think there are second-mile people around here. I know of a lady from Cross Point, I think she still does this, who on a regular basis, maybe I've mentioned this before, goes to chemotherapy treatment centers. Sometimes she'll take some snacks, some desserts, some food, and serve the patients. Other times just tries to encourage them as they receive their treatments. There's another guy that I think of who I think is a second mile servant. He shows up here like many do at 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings and we have this pretty big trailer that is filled with I don't know how many black cases full of our stuff. And he comes early to unload those cases so that when the rest of the team shows up, they're ready to go to work and set up, and then he joins in helping them. I heard the story of a person who went the extra mile, met someone recently in a grocery store, and had a conversation and discovered that this person had some needs, some financial needs. So he made some phone calls, made some things happen to help them get the help that they needed. He was living out the extra mile principle. Jesus, just before he would be crucified, was invited to the home of his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It would be just a matter of a couple days that he would hang in pain on the cross, but on this night, he enjoyed the warmth of friendship. And Mary not only served him dinner that night, but when dinner was over, she went into the other room and she carried out an alabaster jar filled with beautiful smelling oils she broke open that alabaster jar and poured it on jesus feet and began to wipe it with her own hair some in the room including judas said that that's a little extravagant but not jesus jesus accepted her second mile gift with grace because he understood the love from which it was poured out I wonder when he hung on the cross if you could still smell some of the fragrance of that oil, of that extravagant gift. You know what? There are so many opportunities for us to follow Mary's example. Maybe you know an elderly person whose spouse has recently died and they're so lonely. What if you just spent a little bit of time with them? Maybe there, is, there are kids who you know have no dad, and they are longing for the influence of a man in their life, and what if you just invested a little bit of time in their life? Maybe there are people who live in the bedroom just down the hall who have your same last name, and maybe they could use some second-mile giving. What if you did your homework without their asking for no reason? What if you got up early, made the coffee, and poured his cup? What if you just sat down and wrote them a love letter expressing the depth of your love? What about the next time when you're out mowing your yard, you go ahead and mow the neighbor's yard too, and when he asks why, you just say, I wanted to serve you because I care. There are plenty of opportunities to be second-mile givers. And why would we do it? Because God loves people. And I should too.
You know, I think we all want our lives to count for something, don't we? Three Super Bowl rings, money, fame, and yet Tom Brady says, and many like him, there's got to be something more. God says he wants to transform our lives into something that is spectacular. And he says that process begins by us changing the way that we think. What would happen if we really let him? What would happen if we just dared to live like we really believe that God knows better than I do? What would happen in our lives and the people around us if we accepted his invitation that he is up to something in the world and I have been invited to join him in that? What if I lived out my part of that? And what would happen if I really acted as if I believed that God loves people and I should too? I want to tell you this morning, if we would just live out those three core beliefs, we would leave a mark in this world. You and I could make an incredible difference in this world, in this community, if we would just determine to live out those three core beliefs beginning today. God, would you help us to live out those beliefs in our lives beginning right now. God, would you transform us into something that is spectacular. In Jesus' name.